Please turn now to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, where we pick up this morning at verse 41. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. This is the conclusion uh, of Jesus' debate with the, the religious leaders. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for another opportunity to gather together around your word, that we might read it, that we might mark it, that we might learn it, that we might inwardly digest it, that we might be changed by it. Father, we pray that we would see the glory of our Lord Jesus in this passage this morning, that we would understand what He is saying to His audience, but that we might also understand what the Spirit is saying to us. Lord, give us openness before Your Word. Help us to behold Your glory, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem uh, he's faced the hostility of the religious leaders. Having arrived in Jerusalem in that great triumphal entry in which his glories as the long-awaited Messiah were heralded and in which the uh, largely Galilean crowd uh, who had heard Jesus preaching and seen his miracles as they petitioned him to bring his, his messianic work to fulfillment and now save his people, having arrived in Jerusalem, uh, with the air uh, pregnant at the prospect of God's Messiah come finally to bring His people fully and truly back from their exile to dwell in a restored promised land. From that point, uh, things have turned pretty quickly, and that adulation and adoration of the crowd has given way to the distinct hostility of official Judaism. Hard on the heels of the triumphal entry, we find the chief priests and the elders confronting Jesus in the temple, uh, demanding that He tell them by what authority He is doing these things, by what authority He is confronting the abuses of the temple and performing miracles in its precincts. And it was, of course, not an honest request for information, but rather an accusation. The implication being that this uncredentialed backcountry preacher had absolutely no authority to do these things. But as you've seen, that initial confrontation was soon followed up by a prolonged debate in which the Pharisees and the Sadducees have tried to trip Jesus up by posing a series of three scenarios, each of which were designed to expose Jesus as an unworthy guide, designed to undermine his credibility and, and humiliate him in front of the crowd who had been gathered in the temple to listen to him teach. And these hostile confrontations essentially all stem from Jesus' initial action of clearing the temple back in chapter 21. That clearing of the temple was, you, you remember, you, you understand, that the clearing of the temple was, 
was an affront to the honor of the religious leadership. When Jesus went through that court of the Gentiles and, and overturned the tables of the traders and, and, and spilled out the money of the money changers, He wasn't just causing a fracas. He wasn't just causing a scene there. He was, he was taking on the religious leaders. The only reason that these traders were there was because the chief priests had told them to be there. It was the high priest Caiaphas who had brought in the temple traders from their traditional spot of sitting on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and brought them into the temple precinct him, himself. And so, for Jesus to, to come and, and overturn these tables and for him to confront these traders, he is confronting the honor of the high priest himself. And in a shame and honor culture, this was a scandalous thing for Jesus to do. In fact, it was so shocking that it would have been clear to any first century reader that that point Jesus clearing the temple, that point was the point at which His death warrant was essentially signed. And from, those, from that initial confrontation, this debate has, has flowed. And the, the, the leaders of Judaism, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they, they've come out to try and entrap Jesus. They've tried to force him to do something that will either incur the wrath of the crowd or something that will condemn him in the eyes of the civil government. However it needed to be done, you, you understand they were determined to silence Jesus. What we've seen over the past few weeks, Jesus' response to these questions and these confrontations, and we've seen how, how his response to them has been masterful. Jesus has, has silenced His opponents, and He has astonished the crowd with His, with His wisdom. And it seems now, as we come to, to verse 41, that the religious leaders have nothing else to say. And verse 1 makes it clear that, that after Jesus answered their third and final question, that, that question about which commandment was the greatest in all the law, after Jesus' profound answer to that question, that, that the greatest commandment in all the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, it appears that that answer ha has struck the Pharisees dumb, and they don't really know what to do now. They don't flee, apparently, but they also don't speak. It seems the picture is them just standing there, not sure what to do. Leon Morris has commented on this thing. It would appear that Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets was, was such that it cut short any attempt the Pharisees might have contemplated to start a discussion on the relative merits of this or that commandment. What Jesus said was so unexpected, yet so convincing, that nitpicking criticism was, for the time, out of the question. As you remember, the past few weeks we've noticed how the question they bring to Him in verse 36, by which commandment is the greatest in all law, this is a question that they were asking all the time. 
the rabbis were constantly going back and forth as to which one of the commandments was the, was the vital command through which everything else had to be interpreted. We noted a few weeks ago, some of them said it was the fifth commandment. That's the one, the command to honor your father and your mother, because the implications of that commandment come to bear on every single sphere of your, your life. But other rabbis had different answers, but, but Jesus' answer had been, as Leon Morris said, it had been so unexpected yet so convincing that, that they can't really do anything. Normally, in response to that question, they would have come up with their little aha moments and their, what about this? And they would have gone back and forth and they would have buried down into the minutiae of these commandments and how they were to, to bear out, but they can't say anything. They can't go down the, the, the rabbit trails of their interpretation of the law, and so they stand dumbfounded before Jesus. But it's into this apparent silence that Jesus now turns the tables. And he asks them a question. And he turns to them and he asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the Pharisees' question in verse 36, that was a question that was full of complications. That was one of the reasons why they picked it. It was so complicated and tangled and difficult that it's hard to give an answer to it that wouldn't at least enrage someone. But this question that Jesus asked them, that's an easy question. That's a, so that's a softball question. It's clear what the answer is. It was clear to them. It's, it's clear to, to anyone who he has even a passing knowledge of the Old Testament that the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior was David's son. That he is a descendant of, of, of King David, right? There, there's no ambiguity about that in the, in the Old Testament, right? It's explicit in, in the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. Right, if you're following church Bibles on page 259, it's a lengthy quote if you want to follow along. God comes to David. David has expressed a desire to, to build a temple for God's house, something that God had not told him to do. And God responds. And he, he uses a play on words. David wanted to build a house for God, and God here says he's going to build a house for David. David, of course, talking about a physical structure. God now talking about a dynasty. And God comes and he says in 2 Samuel 7, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, 
I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is an enormous step forward in the history of redemption. In in the story of God's fulfillment of His promise in Genesis 3.15 that He would send a Redeemer, a son of the woman who would crush sin under His feet. That initial promise is elaborated on and, and expanded on with every successive covenant that God makes with His people to the point that by the time we get to the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, we understand that this Redeemer is going to establish a glorious multitude Tudinous kingdom that God had promised to Abraham, a place where they will find rest from their sins and reunion with God. But here in this covenant, God makes it clear to David, and He makes it clear to everyone who comes after David that this man promised in Genesis 3.15 is going to be an offspring of David. It will be His Son, and He will come as a king who will save His people by fighting for them and leading them personally into this kingdom, and He will be the one to give them rest from all their enemies. There's no ambiguity here. There's no mystery here. There's no debate here. The son of Eve is the son of David who will come and lead his people into this glorious kingdom that will last forever. And so these Pharisees, these men, for all their faults, and they had many faults, these men who were saturated with the Old Testament, they knew whose son the Messiah would be. This is a no-brainer. And so they respond, verse 42, well, he's going to be the son of David. It's clear, it's obvious, it's easy. But then Jesus asks them a second question. How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? And Jesus, giving the source of his question, quotes from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus further reinforces his question by confronting them and saying, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? The question is, if the Messiah is a descendant of David, which he clearly is, How can David be in a position of subordination to him? It is sons that are subordinate to their fathers, not the other way around. Right? That that is a core principle. It's a core principle of families all the time everywhere. But it's especially a core principle that, that runs throughout Scripture. And a principle that would have been an absolute given in the first century culture. A son gives deference to his father, not the other way around. So, how could David, 
knowing the promise that God had given him, that the Messiah would be one of his descendants, would be explicitly his offspring. How could David, knowing that, go on to write Psalm 110 and call the Messiah his Lord? If David calls him Lord, then he clearly understands him to be the son of someone far superior to himself, but yet God has said that he's going to be his own son. How can that be? It's a riddle. It's a riddle. It's it's clear that David didn't just make a mistake. That's the easy way out. But, of course, Jesus is careful to point out in verse 43 that David wrote this in the Spirit. It's not a mistake. He wrote it by divine inspiration, a fact that these Pharisees would not have disputed. So how then can it be resolved? Well, the Pharisees can't resolve it. Either because they, they, they can't figure out the answer, which is unlikely, or because they know what Jesus is saying, and they understand the implications for the claims that have been made about Jesus and the claims that Jesus has made about Himself, being the son of David, the promised Messiah. But in asking them this question, Jesus has succeeded in doing what they have been trying to do but have failed. In asking this question, Jesus has silenced His opponents. He is the one who has undermined their credibility before this crowd. They had tried to embarrass Him by asking Him the series of of questions that tried to, to trip Him up, but here Jesus turns the table and He asks them a question. He poses them this riddle that they cannot, they will not answer. In doing so, it is Jesus who shames them. And He does it in the very heart of their power base, in the temple itself. And entering into this debate, the religious leaders had assumed that they had the upper hand, that they were the ones who held all of the cards. We can imagine them, I think, coming up to, to Jesus in the temple after Jesus had cleared the temple and was now teaching. I think we can imagine them swaggering up to Jesus. There's almost, a, almost an idea that they might nudge one another and say, hey, w- watch this. So they come up with these, these ideas of how they're going to just pointedly devastate Him with, with their brilliance and their, their theological understanding. But here it is Jesus right in the very heart of their power base, who has turned the the tables, and He has shamed them by bringing them to a point of silence. And their hallowed halls on their home territories. It It is Jesus who has asked the question that has embarrassed them and humiliated them in the face of those who are watching and and listening. What first century readers would not have missed is that this public humiliation would only serve to heighten their desire to get rid of Jesus. He's humiliated the chief priest in his clearing of the temple, an act which by itself would have been something considered worthy of execution. But now he has compounded it by making enemies of the leading men of Jerusalem. In the storyline of this gospel, the storm has just grown darker. 
and the cross has just grown larger. But how are we to understand this riddle? How are we to to make sense of this riddle that Jesus has given to His opponents? Matthew doesn't resolve it for us, right? And in doing so, it seems that his main point in including this vignette is to show us Jesus' victory over His opponents and highlight the growing contention between Jesus and His opponents. It seems to be that that's, that's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to see this, this confrontation, Jesus coming out the victor, and us to understand this shame-honor culture that would have led this to further condemn Jesus. But if we are to press it, how do we resolve it? Well, in calling him Lord, David explicitly understood that while the Messiah would be his son, his descendant, his offspring, there's a profound sense in which he also understood the Messiah would be the son of someone far greater than himself. And if we take this in the context of all that Jesus has said about himself in this debate, especially what he said in the parable of the tenants back in chapter 21, what Jesus is pointing out is that the son of David is the son of God. What Jesus is saying is that in Psalm 110, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understands that while the Messiah would be his son, the son of the king, he would also, in a profound sense, David understood him to be the the son of his own king. That is to say, that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And you remember, this is the very point that Jesus made in the parable of the tenants in chapter 21. In that parable, the owner of the vineyard kept sending his servants to his vineyard only to have them beaten and killed by the rebellious tenants. And finally, the father sends his son, who they too kill in an attempt to steal the land. In that parable, the owner is God, The tenants are the religious leaders, the servants are the prophets, and the Son is the Son of God who came as the final revelation of His Father's glory only for Himself to be dismissed and murdered, for which the Father would bring a crushing judgment on the rebels. And so what Jesus is doing here at the end of this debate is He is saying to His opponents, He is that Son. Jesus ends this debate by turning to his opponents and saying to them that he is the Son of God, the divine Messiah who has come to rescue and redeem his people. Right? That he is that messianic Son of David is something that Jesus has explicitly and implicitly claimed throughout his ministry, and especially since he has arrived in Jerusalem. It's the very thing that Jesus claimed as He declared that the kingdom of heaven was at hand in His arrival, that He was the one who had come as David's greater son to establish that kingdom of God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, that He was the one who had come as this king to lead the people of God into this kingdom of rest and peace from sin and from the effects of of sin, that great truth that Jesus illustrates in His miracles. It's the very thing the crowd proclaimed in the triumphal entry, addressing him as the son of David and petitioning him in their cries of Hosanna to come now and save his people as David's son was to come and save his people. 
But now, as Jesus brings this to a close, He says to His opponents, He's not only David's son, He's also David's Lord. He turns to His opponents and really in answer to the very first question that they asked him after the clearing of the temple, he says to them, you want to know why, by what authority I'm doing these things? The authority that I bear is the authority of David's God. He says to them, I'm not only the Messiah, the Son of David, I am the Messiah, the Lord of David. I am the divine Messiah who has been sent by God the Father to, as Psalm 110 goes on to say, to rule His people and to execute judgment against the enemies of God and to wield that mighty scepter. And you see, that's the thing that the Pharisees understood, but they could not bring themselves to concede. It is, it is incomprehensible that they haven't put this together. In fact, in Luke 22, it is a crucial part of the charge that they lay against Jesus, that He is claiming to be the Son of God. They know what He's saying. They understand the implications of His question, but they cannot admit it because to admit it would mean that they would have to concede that Jesus was their Lord as well. And so they stand dumbfounded. But you understand, this is the crucial thing that we must confess about Jesus. This is the crucial thing that we must confess about Jesus if we are to enter into His kingdom. Jesus is not just another political figure come to establish another earthly kingdom. Jesus is nothing less than the ultimate king, the king of kings, the divine king who has come not merely to make our lives better, but to give us new lives, who has come in fulfillment of all His covenant promises to bring the full and final salvation that God had promised and illustrated throughout the Old Testament to bring us up out of the living death of our sin and to bring us into His kingdom of life in which we can bask in the light of God. Unless you know Jesus like that, you do not know Jesus. This vignette is more than just the final point in this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. It is literally a definitive moment in these last days in Jerusalem. Here, Matthew, writing this gospel, gives us his readers the lens through which we are to read what happens from this point forward. A line here has been drawn in the sand. Everything that we have seen of Jesus and everything that we will see of him, Matthew wants us to read through the words of Psalm 110. Now, that will make the coming chapters incredibly heartbreaking, as we will watch the divine Messiah be rejected and murdered by His own people. But it will also make them incredibly hopeful. We will see our King go into this final battle, 
and we will see him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But we will see it with the sure and certain knowledge that just as God had promised to David, he will crush his and our enemies under his feet. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you this morning for Jesus, our great King, whose greatness is far beyond our limited comprehension. Oh, Father, we confess that, that often we want to make Jesus manageable. We want to comprehend Him. We want to get our minds around Him. And Lord, sometimes we want to do that because we love Him and we want to know the ones we love. But yet we confess His glory, His person is far beyond the reaches of our minds and our hearts. But we thank You for the glimpses that You give us. We thank You for verses like this in which the curtain is lifted even a little. And we are able to peek into eternity and we are able to behold the glory of Christ our King. Oh, Father, help us to know Him and help us to rest in Him. As the nations rage around us, as the kings of the earth rail against Christ and His people, Lord, help us to be in peace, at peace knowing who He is that the day is coming when He will trample all of His and our enemies under His feet, when He will break them in that Psalm 2 way, like an iron rod against a ceramic pot. When they will fade away, as powerful as they seem now, they will fade away before His majesty, and we will come into the rest and the joy of the fullness of His kingdom. O oh Lord, fill our hearts with thoughts of our Savior, that we might marvel in Him, that we might delight in Him, and that we might serve Him gladly, boldly, without fear in this present age. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.